Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text from the 13th chapter of St. Luke, the Gospel read for today. This verse in particular, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Our text, dear friends in Christ. Our text begins with those words, at that very hour. What hour? One of those hours in which Jesus had his mind fixed on Jerusalem. You know those times, because you've had those kinds of hours where you've had your mind intent on going from one place to the other, walking at a fast pace perhaps with a look of determination on your face that would tell anyone and everyone around you that here was someone on a mission, here was someone going to a specific time because he wanted to get there at a specific time and to be at a specific place, or driving from early morning to late at night in order to get from San Jose to Salt Lake City, on your way perhaps to the Midwest and you're determined to get there at a certain time. That determination that drives one on and on, movement with a mission in mind, with a goal in mind, to be at a certain place at a certain time for a certain purpose. And that's all behind those opening words of our text when it talks about that very hour our Lord Jesus had in his mind getting to Jerusalem at a certain time, Passover, for a certain purpose, to be the Passover lamb who would, as long prophesied, take away the sin of all the world. In fact, to impress that upon the reader, St. Luke in our Gospel for today starts this section of the Gospel with these words that are found in the text and it says, And as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Get those phrases? Passing through from one city to another, proceeding on his way. Can't you feel even in the phrases that St. Luke uses there, that forward moving momentum, that motion taking place, the drive that's behind it all, he had to get. In fact, in the Greek, there's a little Greek word, a three-letter Greek word that means must, day, that he, he had to, he must get on to Jerusalem. A driving kind of a word, he had to get there, like some sort of homing device, that mechanism that guides its object to a certain destination. So Jesus was being guided, driven onto that destination, getting to Jerusalem. To be sure, he may well entertain some questions as he was going to Jerusalem through the towns and through the villages where he was. Certainly he would use these times as teachable moments, but he would not be detracted by them from his primary goal of getting to Jerusalem. As we heard, in fact, in last Sunday's sermon, he wasn't about to let Satan get him off track as he was there in the wilderness fighting Satan off and all the temptations that he had. And he's not about to let now even the warm welcome. If it wouldn't be Satan, he's not about to let the warm welcome and he's not about to let the positive reception either of the town folk and the well-intended questions of the villagers on the way move him off his course to Jerusalem either. 
As much as they welcomed him, and surely they did, to stay in their villages and in their towns to teach them more and to heal them of their diseases and to do all of the things that he had so powerfully and miraculously done, he doesn't. Rather, he lovingly teaches them, quote, as he was passing through, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. The movement, the motion, the momentum of them all are caught up in what Luke tells us there. Unhindered was Jesus by every distraction, even that of the Pharisees, remember, who in the text do what? They come and they say to Jesus, another distraction, on his way to Jerusalem, they come and they say to him, Jesus, you've got to get out of here because Herod, the king, wants to kill you. Well, apparently the Pharisees hadn't heard the famous adage of the Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu, who in 400 BC had said, and it was a famous quotation of the time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. They wanted to get rid of Jesus, the Pharisees did, in any way that they could, even if it meant feigning friendship, pretending to be his friends, concerned about his welfare. Indeed, so intent are they of ridding Jerusalem of Jesus before he would even get there, preventing him from even getting to Jerusalem, that they, without blinking an eye, misrepresent themselves as being his friends. But there's another word from the wise. When your enemies start acting like your friends, beware. And Jesus was well aware of the fact that his Pharisee friends were not his friends at all. They were, after all, from the very same religious order of which Jesus had spoken before, saying, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's bidding, and your father has been a murderer from the very beginning. Jesus knew the Pharisees for who they were. Jesus knew the Pharisees for what they wanted to do. And no matter what they said or what they did, they were not his friends. And Jesus knew it well. In fact, they had likely been sent by Herod to intimidate Jesus. King Herod, who wanted to publicly be thought of as a majestic and a royal lion that was to be feared. But Herod was no lion to Jesus. To the contrary and defiantly, what does Jesus call him in our text? Jesus calls him a fox. A fox which is in common Hebrew usage a pompous pretender, a sly little animal, immoral, an opportunist, and in the Greek, which St. Luke uses, the word fox is a distinctly feminine word. And so the one who thinks of himself as being this mighty, masculine lion is now being referred to by Jesus as a little feminine fox. Not to be feared. A mouse that roars. Go tell that fox, Jesus says, Behold, I cast out demons, and I perform cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day, I finish my course. 
In essence, he was telling the Pharisees, go and tell Herod, I'm going to do what God's word has determined that I will do. Because after all, casting out demons, performing cures, these are all words that are of a messianic motif of the Old Testament. They're, they're miracles, they're powerful miracles, the mastery over even the laws of nature that undeniably demonstrate his deity. This is exactly what the Son of God would do, and this is exactly what Jesus did. He was no pompous pretender like Herod the fox. No, this is the real lion. This is the death-defying and the death-denying and the death-defeating lion of Judah who will not be put down by the Pharisees or by their fox. No, he will die. Jesus is going to die. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. But it won't be because of the fox. He'll die, but it won't be because of the Pharisees. He lays down his life on his own accord. And that's why he said, No man taketh my life from me. I have the power, he said, to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up again. This is all given to me, he said, by the Father. You see, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for that specific purpose, indeed, to lay down his life on his own accord. That's, in essence, what he's talking about when he says it's printed on your service folder cover. And he says, on the third day I finish my course. The third day, some scholar says, is a veiled reference to the third day when he raises himself from the dead. His work being completed, now he's raised from the dead as proof that his sacrifice has been offered by the Father. Perfectly in accord with what he said when he said, I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to raise my life up again. That's the power he had. Both of them accomplished in three days, Friday of Holy Week. What does he do? He lays his life down upon the cross for the sins of all of the world, and Sunday of Holy Week he raises it up again. The three days during which he completed, he finished, as your bulletin cover says, all of the work that the Father had sent him to do, being, quote, as St. Paul says, delivered up for our transgressions and raised again for our justification. And like Jeremiah in the Old Testament lesson today, Jesus defies those who think that they have the power to stop the word and the will of God, as the Pharisees or as Herod did. Jesus, like Jeremiah, says what, he, what has to be said. He does what has to be done, no matter what the cost might be. Remember what, in essence, Jeremiah said? But he said in the Old Testament lesson to those who were plotting to kill him because he dared to speak out against them and to speak the word of God, that he dared to speak out against Jerusalem, Jeremiah. What Jeremiah says, he said, Do with me what you want, but I have spoken the word that God has sent me to speak, and that will not be undone. And they eventually did to him what they wanted to do, just as they would do with so many of the prophets of God that were sent to speak by God to Jerusalem. And thus a saying of the time that was common to many was repeated by Jesus, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. A common saying of the time. 
And isn't that the way it is with sinful man? How often the messengers are hated because really it's the message that's hated. The message that God has given them to speak is hated, and so instead the anger with the message is given to the messenger. It happened to Jeremiah. It happened to many of the Old Testament prophets. If not most or all of them, it happened ultimately to Jesus. And despite the fact that Jesus said to his disciples, he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me, despite that it happened to every apostle of our Lord that they too were hated because of the message they brought. And they suffered as a consequence of it. It happened to so many of the early church fathers. It happened to our Reformation fathers. And yes, it still happens to God's people and God's messengers today. In our day, in our day, even in our day, the messengers are hated because of the message. After all, it's much safer, isn't it, to attack the messengers than it is the message when you know that the message is indeed the word of God. And who wants to attack God? At least an attack on the bearer of the word is a step or two removed from attacking the author of the word itself. So when you don't like what the word says, you attack the man who faithfully proclaims it to you. Because he certainly has his faults, doesn't he? Focus on those faults and nail his hide to the wall. All too many faithful pastors in our day are disregarded and then discarded because they faithfully spoke the word of God to people who didn't like hearing it. Not that there aren't unfaithful pastors who should be indeed discharged and dumped. Sadly, there are. Those who are unfaithful to the word, who don't teach the doctrine of scripture as it should be taught, who abuse their office, indeed there are. But there are also all too many, especially in our politically correct age, who would damn and dump a pastor for daring to say what they don't want to hear, for calling their sin a sin before he preaches the comfort of sin forgiven. Attack the messenger so that you can ignore the message. St. Paul says, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Or, if it's not that messenger that's attacked, there are those who, rather than attack the message of the word, will, will attack the, the time-tested creeds and the confessions and the historic liturgy of the church, which have for generation upon generation been so faithful as messengers of God to so many of God's people, bridging cultures and climates and generations. Or they'll attack baptism, the Lord's Supper, the purest bearers of Christ, and him crucified, and they're made into mere ordinances that we do for God, rather than those precious means of grace through which he delivers to us the very forgiveness of sins, which Christ won for us upon the cross, being delivered to us in our day, or scripture itself rejected 
as being simply man's culturally conditioned word about God rather than God's inspired and an errant word about man and Christ's saving work for our sake. You see, it still happens. It happens all the time. It happens over and over again. The messengers and the bearers of the word attack because the message is unwelcome and the word is unwanted unless it does what we have predetermined that we want it to do unless it entertains us or unless it excuses us or tolerates our indiscretion or accommodates the socially accepted sins of our times. It still happens. Even among us, even among us, when we, like the Pharisees of old, make what we do, even as the people of God, make what we do the primary message of the church rather than Jesus Christ and what he has done and still does for us. What sorrow such rejection caused Christ when he stood outside of Jerusalem his message being rejected, his work being rejected, Christ and him crucified and all that it would accomplish being rejected by the people. It's interesting too, like Jeremiah of old, you know what Jeremiah was called in the days of old? The weeping prophet. And he was called the weeping prophet because he's driven to tears by the people's rejection of the word of God that he was given to preach. And so also, like this weeping prophet, Jeremiah, the Lord Jesus stands outside of the same city of Jerusalem. And he cries, tears running down his face. And he cries and he says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you would not. God would, but you would not. The only reason that God says to any people or to any person, your house is forsaken by me, is unbelief. The singular, unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit who would create a repenting and believing faith within us, it all comes down to that. God would, but you would not. In fact, Christ did. Everything that needed to be done for everyone's salvation. He paid for every sin ever committed, no matter how vile, no matter how despicable, how horrible it might be in the eyes of men. And his Holy Spirit stands ready to create a faith in us that accepts all that he has done. A faith that gladly receives his word and his sacraments and the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting that they bring, but there are still those who stubbornly and defiantly will not be gathered under the shelter of his wings. They simply will not. I read recently about a young Nigerian boy. His name was Olu, and he had a pet white chicken. They became great friends and they became inseparable companions. And then one day, the hen disappeared and Olu cried and he cried. And after three weeks, the white hen returned to the compound with seven beautiful white chicks. And little Olu was overjoyed and the mother hen took very good care of her little chicks. 
And then one day, late in the dry season, a number of older boys set a ring of fire to the bush area outside of the village. Everyone stood outside of the ring as the fire burned in then toward the center. The purpose was to drive out all of the little animals such as rabbits and small antelope out of the circle and then the waiting machete of the boys learning to hunt would claim their prey. When the hunt was over, when the fire had burned, Oldo and his friends walked through the smoldering embers and the boy noticed a heap of charred feathers. He smelled the remains and it looked like the remains of a bird that for some reason had not escaped the fire. And then Olo realized in horror that it was his beloved friend, the white hen, now blackened, now burned. As hard as he tried in the presence of his friends, the boy couldn't hold back his tears, and he wept. But then came the sounds of the chicks, the chicks which the mother hen had covered with her wings and her body. Chicks which because of her survived. The mother giving her life for her children. She who had given them life, now giving her life that they might live. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, Jesus says, and you would not. How often I would have, but you would not. Sadder words never spoken, especially when they make the difference between eternity with Christ and eternity without him. His final words in today's text. You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that day came, and as he said, Jerusalem saw him once more. The sacrifice for the sin of the world being brought to them in the most ordinary way on a common beast of burden, that carried the Savior of the world into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world and to rise again on the third day to finish off his holy work. And as he said, they shall sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing that too. We sing it in our liturgy. As he comes to us all so often, in his very body and blood, being born to us in the most humble, in the most ordinary way, in and with consecrated bread and wine. He comes to us right here, that we might be hidden under his outstretched arms, where we are forever safe, where we are forever forgiven, where we are forever his. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.